All right, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 17 as we continue to look at noble living in a needy world. Thank you for standing as we open the Word of God together. And I guess about every six or eight weeks or so, I want to remind folks of this um, who are, uh, maybe have been visiting with us for some time, or maybe this is your first time with us, uh, that, that you wonder, like, when, when the pastor opens the Scripture, we're, we're, we're not an ecumenical church, so to speak, so we don't have in our bulletin uh, places that tell you, you know, uh, when to stand up or when to sit down and, and, and that sort of thing. But years ago, I preached a sermon out of Nehemiah chapter 8, and I spoke about how when Ezra the scribe opened the book of the law, well, he wouldn't have opened it like this, it would have been a scroll, he'd open it like this. But when Ezra the scribe opened the book of the law, he didn't have to say, uh, stand. They just were so overwhelmed to be in the presence of the law after it had been away from them for so long. They were so overwhelmed by the scroll being opened in their very presence that they just kind of stood up out of respect. And the very next Sunday after I'd preached on that passage, I opened up my Bible to preach again, and without saying anything, people just started standing up out of respect for the Word of God. And that's kind of been a, a tradition here ever since. I don't have to ask people to stand for the reading of Scripture. Uh, when I open the Bible, people just start standing up. So if you've been wondering about that, well, they've jumped the gun on the pastor. He, haven't, he hasn't even asked them to stand up yet, and they're standing for the reading of Scripture. It's because of that message I preached years ago. It just kind of stuck with some people, and, and when I opened the Bible, people just uh, began to automatically stand. And so if you've wondered about that before, some of you have been maybe... Uh, here for a year or less, you wonder, well, yeah, I wonder why some people just kind of try to be the first one up. They're just, as we open the book, they stand up in the honor of, of being in the presence of God's Word. And I appreciate that. That really speaks to this pastor's heart. Um, thought I would throw that in there. Thank you. Uh, Matthew chapter 17, now that you found it, uh, this is about the transfiguration of Jesus Christ in the presence of His disciples. It says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John, and led them up on a mountain by themselves. He was transformed in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. Even his clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son. I take delight in him. Listen to him. When the disciples heard it, they fell face down and were terrified. Then Jesus came up, touched them, and said, Get up, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except him, Jesus alone. They were coming down from the mountain. Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So the disciples questioned him, why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied, but I tell you, Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him and in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. Father, we thank you for your word. We do stand in honor of it, but I pray that more importantly, we will live it out with great passion. So we ask that the Spirit of God illuminate this Word that we might live in a way that is more pleasing and more fruitful for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Let me ask you a question before we dig into the text here. How many of you already say, you know what, I really love what I do. Uh, when it comes to your job, your work, what you do, 
Maybe you're a homemaker. Maybe you work in a business. Maybe you own a business. How many of you would say, I really love what I do? Just raise your hand. All right. Ben and Jeff better raise their hand. Yeah, they did. All right, good. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I love what I do. I absolutely love what I do. But I ask this question every now and then. What if you had to trade jobs with somebody for a year? If you could trade jobs with anybody for one year, what would it be? You might say, well, I want to, you know, I want to be a pastor because all you have to do is work on Sunday morning, Wednesday night, and play golf the rest of the week, right? <laughs> Not exactly. Um, because there is somebody that comes to my mind when I think, if I could trade jobs with anybody for one year, I, I have in mind somebody that, that I would be willing to trade jobs with. Have you thought of somebody? Can, can you think of somebody you would like to maybe trade jobs with for a year? Well, I, I'm going to show you a picture of the guy I would like to trade jobs with. Tell me if you know who this is. We'll put it up on the screen. Anybody know this guy? You guys are laughing because somebody else thought of him too, right? Uh, Guy Fietti, if I can pronounce his name right. I can't really roll my R's, but man, he travels the country in the coolest 1967 candy apple red convertible Camaro. I mean, is that not a job right there? But his job is to go to all these greasy joints, diners, drive-ins, and dives. And uh, I told Tina as we were watching this show one time, I said, you know, it, isn't this like, you know, somebody who's an alcoholic hanging out in a beer joint? I don't really need to be watching this show. Um, diners, drive-ins, and dive. Man, he goes in, and my mouth waters. You guys hadn't had lunch yet. I, I watch this show, and I think, man, I want to go there. I want to try that. His job is to go in and try a, a samples of these dishes in the various locations. And he, I've, never seen him, I've never seen him put anything in his mouth, and he's saying, no, nah, that's not really that good. I mean, everything he tries is delicious. Everywhere he goes, obviously, comes with great recommendations. And he goes before the rest of us, and most of us will never get to travel to all these places. As a matter of fact, we can't wait till he comes somewhere close so we can give that a shot. But, but he goes to these places, and I think, man, what a dream job. He is experiencing something in a way that he's, his goal is to make everyone else want to go there to taste and see. And, and the restaurant people say, hey, come and dine. Look how much he's enjoying it. Now, now why, why would I show you that picture, and why would I say I would like to trade jobs with him? Well, first of all, because I would. I think it would be cool. Not, I, I love what I'm doing. I believe I'm called to do what I'm doing. But if I had to trade jobs with somebody, and let's admit, uh, Guy Fietti would be a pretty good, job, a pretty good guy to trade jobs with for a year. But I also wanted to share that because I believe God often allows us to taste the fullness of the kingdom of God in such a way in our lives, and, and to enjoy it before others, that they look at our lives and they say, you know what, I want to go there. You know what, I want to try that. We're living out a foretaste of His glory, and at times in our lives, God steps in in a supernatural way and reveals His presence and His power in our lives in such a way that as we experience that, even this side of heaven, it makes us Come to a place where we say, you know what, but I can't wait till the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. I can't wait to experience the, the presence and the power of Christ in all of His glory. So throughout our lives, He will give us those foretastes of glory at different times, perhaps not to the same degree that He did here on the Mount of Transfiguration as we now refer to it, but certainly a foretaste of His glory that we're to experience His power and His presence in our lives in such a way that, that it makes others want to taste and see that the Lord is Good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. In verse 1, we're told here, six days, after six days, Jesus took Peter and James 
and John up on this mountain. Now Luke says eight days. Luke was a Gentile writing, and sometimes uh, a Gentile would refer to the week as everything in, in between. So he might say eight days, meaning um, after eight days, including this day that we started with and the day we end with. But Jews looked at a week as a six-day period. What both writers are trying to say is about a week later. That's what they're trying to say. About a week later. Later than what? What had happened? Go back to chapter 16 where we just left. Jesus had kind of closed out as He was talking about the cross. He said, I assure you in verse 28, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now we know that none of the apostles lived until the rapture of the church or the second coming of Christ. But there were disciples that were with Him a week earlier that heard Him say, you're going to see me in all of my glory coming in my kingdom. And that's what happened a week later at the Mount of Transfiguration. Just remember, when, the, when Matthew was writing the Gospel of Matthew, he wasn't numbering the verses and the chapters. It just kind of naturally flows from one chapter, one sentence into the next here. And so this is what's taking place. They're seeing Christ in all of His glory. Now, let's be honest. God is always at work around us. Always at work around us. Jesus said, my Father is always working He's obviously always inviting us to get in on what He's doing. We can behold His glory in numbers of ways. When you think about Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2, when He says, the stars proclaim the glory of the Lord. When you walk out, especially in a rural area on a clear night, and you gaze up into the heavens, you're seeing the very glory of God. The stars are applauding and and, and praising God in all of their brilliance. Romans chapter 1 says that we're without excuse if we say there is no God because God has made Himself real in His creation. So whether you're in the North Georgia mountains in the fall of the year, standing atop brass town bald, checking out the beautiful scenery as the leaves are changing colors, you're seeing the glory of God. When you're walking on a beach during a sunrise and the the waves are rolling in and the sun's coming up over the vast ocean, you're seeing the glory and awesomeness of God. And then we have the more specific revelation of God, the Spirit of God illuminating His Word. More And most importantly, perhaps, when He illuminated the Gospel of Jesus Christ, when, when you came to that moment where you trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord because you understood the Gospel that Christ came and lived a sinless life, died on the cross in your place, was buried in the grave and rose from the grave. When you understood that, you comprehended that you were a sinner, but that you could turn from sin and self and be saved, by grace through faith in Christ alone, that was a glorious revelation and manifestation of God in your life. And some of you remember not only that day, but the day that you shared that good news with a spouse or with a child or with a grandchild, and you saw them put their faith in Jesus Christ. And you know that that's one of the most glorious moments because you beheld the glory of God in a powerful and special way. There are a few occasions, however, where it seems that heaven just opens up and God reveals His glory in undeniable fashion that leave us breathless and in wonder of who God is. You think of Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord, which I believe was the pre-incarnate Christ. I believe that was a Christophany, the messenger from God was Christ wrestling. That that was a glorious moment, even though it crippled him for life. It was a 
glorious moment. Moses at the burning bush, beholding the glory of God, and the bush was burning but not being consumed. Later, when he saw the Red Sea parted, don't you know that was a glorious moment, a revelation of the power and glory of God as they followed the Shekinah glory through the Red Sea. The moment that Daniel found himself in a lion's den, he experienced God's glory and power. Or his three friends who were thrown into a fiery furnace, and when they looked in to see if they were being consumed, not only were they not being burned up, but there was a fourth one who had the appearance of the sun. I believe that also was the glorified pre-incarnate Christ right there in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because he had the appearance of the Son of Man, it says. I believe Jesus stood with those boys because they stood for him and wouldn't bow to this world. So at times in our life, it just seems like heaven opens up and the glory of God is revealed. Here are three close disciples. What's a reminder to say close to Jesus? Isn't it? Three close disciples were able to behold His glory like never before. What can we learn from their experience? What can we learn about that foretaste of glory divine? First of all, you're taking notes, write this down. It'll be on the overhead. Look for confirmation. Look for confirmation that prepares you for something. Look for confirmation that prepares you for something instead of trying to extend that moment of ecstasy. In other words, the moment was preparing these disciples for something. Even though Peter wanted to extend it, the moment was preparing them for something. In verse 2, it says, He was transformed in front of them. They saw this. This temporary glorification of Christ even before His death and resurrection. Even His clothes became as white as the light. Actually, Jesus had only temporarily laid His glory aside to step out of heaven to become flesh and, and dwell among us so we could behold some degree of His glory in human form. This description reminds me of, of Revelation Chapter 1, in verses 12 through 18, we see that John is in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He's exiled to the island of Patmos. And in the midst of that, Jesus Christ appears to him. And it's not the Jesus as he walked, it's the same Jesus, but not in the same appearance as he walked on this earth with him. Not even the same way he appeared after the resurrection. Remember what he told Mary? He said, Don't cling to me yet. I have not been glorified. But later he would ascend to the Father. He would be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He would be, be glorified and, and the glory would be restored as he had prayed in John chapter 17 that the same glory that he had with the Father would be restored to him in its fullness. And that glory was restored. So by the end of John's life, at the end of the first century, he comes back and he appears to John to bring what we call the revelation of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 1, 12 through 18, he describes that he hears the voices like mighty rushing waters. He sees the, the, the feet like brass. He sees his face glowing. And it's, it's this glorified Christ that I believe for a moment appeared this way before these disciples at the Mount of Transfiguration. 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 3, John is saying, look, we, we've seen Him. We've experienced it. We've beheld Him. We've touched Him. It was a confirmation. We know that what we're telling you is true. First John gives all the evidences that you can know, that you know, that you know, that you've trusted in Jesus Christ, that He is who He claimed to be, and that you can have eternal life. He says, we were there. We saw Him. We experienced it. We touched it. We beheld it. 
John was there on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw Christ in all of His glory. It was, it was a confirmation and it was preparing him for this life of service just as it was James and like it was Peter. And he, they look up and in the midst of this glorification, we also see in verse 3, Moses and Elijah. I believe this represents the fact that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the law and the prophets because Moses is always connected with the law. Elijah is always connected with the prophets. And they were there talking with Jesus, the one who had come to fulfill the law, of, uh, to fulfill the law and the prophets so that as Romans 8, 4 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so He is the fulfillment of that. This is a confirmation in the life of these disciples that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. But Luke tells us something in addition to all of that. Luke, when he describes the Mount of Transfiguration, says that Moses and Elijah were there talking to Jesus about His suffering on the cross. So not only were the disciples being prepared for something special, Jesus Himself was being prepared by Moses and Elijah for what He would experience on the cross they were there representing all the fullness of the law and the prophets that Jesus Christ would fulfill everything according to the law and according to the prophets, and He would make it on the cross. And we're reminded in Hebrews chapter 12 that we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. They were preparing Him. They were saying, listen, everything is going to be fulfilled. We don't know everything that Moses and Elijah were saying, But Luke does tell us they were preparing him. They were discussing the cross that was ahead. So the disciples are being prepared. Jesus is being prepared. And Peter, all of a sudden, in the midst of this glorious moment, this foretaste of divine glory, he wants to make this exception the norm. Now, I've got good news for us. One day the exception will be the norm. But we're not in heaven yet. I mean, if we look around... Does it take us long to figure that out? We're not in heaven yet. We're not there yet. But in this life, we can get a foretaste of glory divine. But Peter wants that to be the norm. He wants to camp out there. He's saying in verse 4, Lord, it's good for us to be here. I can imagine Jesus saying, duh. (laughs) It's good for us to be here. If you want, I'll tell you what, we're going to pitch a tent. We're going to make some tabernacles. We're going to camp out here. This is The Shekinah glory of God is present, or was about to be present in reality. Let's just just make this moment last. God had other plans. We want to camp out in in those mountaintop moments. You know, everybody is a winner at the pep rally. You remember pep rallies? Some of you are still in school, so hopefully still they let you have those pep rallies. You get out of class go to the gym, have a big pep rally. Everybody feels like a winner at a pep rally. Everybody's excited. Everything's going great. Everything's going wonderful. But eventually, the pep rally has to come to an end, and you've got to play ball. You can't stay at the pep rally forever. And sometimes in in the Christian life, we want to make that mountaintop experience. Well, let's just kind of freeze it. Let's just hold on to the ecstasy of the moment. Let's make it last. And God uh, God wants to show us a glimpse of His glory to prepare us for something back in the valley. Remember, noble living in a needy world. God wants us to be that preview of coming attractions. He wants us to live out our lives in this world so that people in the valley, people who aren't experiencing the foretaste of His glory yet, might see in us something different. And so we can't try to isolate ourselves in those moments of receiving that foretaste in such a way that we say, you know what, let's just stay here on the mountaintop. 
we can't always live on the mountaintop. But I remember the old gospel song by the group, the McCamies. I only knew one song that they did, but I heard it often. God on the mountain is still God in the valley. I looked up the words again. It says, life is easy when you're up on the mountain, and you've got peace of mind like you've never known. But things change when you're down in the valley. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Things change when you're down in the valley. Don't lose faith, or you're never alone. For the God on the mountain is the God in the valley. When things go wrong, He'll make them right. And the God of the good times is still God in the bad times. Can I get another amen? The God of the good times is still God in the bad times. The God of the day is still God in the night. The problem we have sometimes is forgetting in the darkness what we learned in the light. God wants us to remember in the darkness what we've learned in the light. Maybe it was a powerful worship moment. Man, you just wanted to hold on to it as long as you possibly can. Let's just keep it going. Work everybody up and let's just camp out there for a while. Maybe it was a youth camp or a youth retreat. Or a kids camp that you went to. Now, I know sometimes when you go on these trips, kids get homesick. Pastor Ben, they want to go home. (laughs) They get a little bit homesick. But there's always that handful of kids. They don't want to go home. No, it's not the last day. I want to stay. Or a youth camp, a youth retreat. We don't want to go back home. We want to stay. This is an awesome moment. Kumbaya, one more time. No, that was my generation. Um, whatever they sing. Well, one more time. Let's, just, let's make this last as long as we possibly can. Let's just camp out here on the mountain because it is so rich and it is so sweet and we've experienced the miraculous touch and the provision of God and I want to experience that over and over and over again. Or, or maybe I've been emotionally charged and there's some spiritual depth and spiritual challenge and all that. I just want to camp out there. God says, you know what? You can't stay in that moment. You can't camp out in that moment. You need that moment. You need that moment. And in that moment, you need to look for confirmation. Confirmation that's preparing you for something. But then it's time to tackle what it's preparing you for. See, the moment is not an end in and of itself. It is preparation to give you courage to tackle what He's placed before you. To embrace the mission that He's calling you to. What's He calling you to? What's God preparing you for? What's He got in store for you? That's what you need to be asking in that moment. And then when you ask, do the second thing here, listen. Listen for communication that purifies your motives instead of trying to speak to the situation. So that's what we want to do, and Peter did the same thing. Peter was the one who was quick to open his mouth and say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he heard, that's great, but he was also the first one to open his mouth and say, we're not going to let you go to the cross, and heard Jesus say, get thee behind me, Satan. He was the one that got out of the boat and sunk, but at least he got out of the boat. He's the one that opened up his mouth on Pentecost, and 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. So he's always quick to speak. Sometimes it's time to listen. While he was still speaking, here's Peter talking, while he was still speaking, it says, verse 5, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and God speaks. The Father here speaking to the Son, this is my beloved Son, I take delight in Him. What does He say? Listen. Listen to Him. The manifestation of God's glory, His presence in our life often says, be still and know that I am God. Listen. It says, listen to my son. 
Listen to what he has to say. Here's what Peter says about it later. And this reminds us how special and how every time we open our Bible, we can have one of these glorious moments. But Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1. We did not follow clever, cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and a voice came to Him from the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, I take delight in Him. And when we heard His voice, when it came from heaven, while we were with Him on the holy mountain, What's he speaking of? He's speaking about what we're reading in Matthew chapter 17. He's writing this years later to a church that's being persecuted. They're about to have to suffer big time. Many were already suffering and even losing their lives for their faith. We think ISIS is bad. It seemed like ISIS had taken over to the people Peter was writing to. So we have a prophetic word strongly confirmed. You will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dismal place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you should know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, moved by the Holy Spirit, men spoke from God. In other words, every time we open the Bible, we have God speaking and we need to be still and listen to what He has to say to us. In verses 6 and 7, we see that there's... Humility in this, followed by the grace of God. The disciples heard it, they fell face down and were terrified. Listen, here's people say, well, you know, you have a lot of people falling out in your worship services and stuff like this, probably more than we should, but I don't mean falling unconscious, I mean falling conscious. See, I'm not really impressed by, by falling unconscious on our back because every time that happens in Scripture, I saw a preacher the other day, man, he was, th- I didn't know you could do this, but he was on TV throwing the Holy Spirit to people. Whew. I'll get Jake to help me with it. He throw a little harder than me. He was th- they were throwing the Holy Spirit. He was throwing the Holy Spirit. They were falling on their back. We were over their back. Every time in Scripture people fell on their back, they were people who didn't know God. Whew, that's scary. What do we see in Scripture when they come into the manifest presence of Christ? It's not unconscious on their back. It is conscious on their face. In other words, we need more people just getting on their face before God. Overwhelmed by His glory. Now they realize, man, God is speaking. And they're on their face before Him. And in the midst of their humility, I've got to be still, I've got to be quiet. God is speaking to me. Jesus touches them. I believe this moment of of glorification had left. He's coming back to his, His appearance as a man. Jesus came and He touched them and said, get up. Isn't that great? They're broken. They're humble. They're on their face. They're terrified. He says, get up. Get up. They looked up. They saw no one but Jesus alone. Sometimes God wants us to get to that place where we realize that all we've got is Jesus and He's enough. We, we try to speak to the situation and God says, no, be quiet. Listen to what I have to say. Listen, you remember that kid in school? There were times I was that kid in school, but remember that kid in school who wanted to be a know-it-all and interrupt the teacher and tell everybody everything? The teacher's like, be quiet, listen. Now, if you are that kid, don't take it personal, but I've been that kid before. 
And God is just saying, you know what, listen, be quiet, I have something to say. We're humble, we're broken before Him, sometimes even embarrassed. Like in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says, after beholding the glory of God in the temple, he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Well, God touches him and cleanses him and makes him ready for the mission that he's calling him to. Nehemiah chapter 8, I referred to a moment ago, they were all broken when the book of the law was read. They're broken, they're weeping, they're on their face. And Ezra the scribe says, here's what God is saying, get up, dust yourself off. Get up, dust yourself off. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Let's get to work, we've got something to do now. That follows that moment of brokenness and humility. But we need to be careful that we don't worship the worship. Here's a statement I've heard pastors say from time to time. Man, the worship was so good, I didn't even have time to preach. And my first thought is, you mean the worship got the people where they were ready to receive a word from God and you didn't bring it? See, in the ecstasy of the moment, they needed to hear Christ speak. They needed a word from God. We need to learn to listen There's a call on your life. There's a change God wants you to make and He wants to make in and through you. There's perhaps a confrontation that the Holy Spirit of God wants to bring to your heart. There's a comforting promise you need to hear and receive from Him. You need to listen. You need to perhaps journal and write these things down. That's why you need to have a daily quiet time because what you're getting fed from the Word of God in corporate worship and in in, in small group Bible studies is not enough, but as you're feeding yourself, begin to journal and write down the things that God is speaking to you. Obey it and redirect your life accordingly. In Christ's closing remarks in this passage, we learn something else that might be the most important thing some of you hear this morning, and it's this. We need to look for common expressions of God's presence instead of always pursuing the signs. I believe in miracles, but I trust in Jesus Christ. I believe that God can do anything today that He did back then. And I believe He's still doing it. And I enjoy when heaven opens and we get a foretaste of God's glory. But we need to learn to look for the common expressions of God's presence instead of always pursuing a sign. They begin to discuss in verses 9-12 through Elijah's ministry. And Jesus is explaining to them, and they finally get this, that Elijah's ministry, that coming as that, that old covenant prophet, Looking forward to the new covenant coming into place. Elijah's ministry was fulfilled in John the Baptist. And Jesus is saying a lot of people just missed it. They just thought John the Baptist was a crazy man. And they missed it. That that the spirit of Elijah was moving through the preaching of John the Baptist to prepare people for what Jesus was about to do as he came on the scene. We need to look for and appreciate the everyday expressions of God's glory around us when God has a word for us and God is speaking to us. Not always saying, well, Lord, here's a dangerous thing to say. Lord, if that's you talking, you better, I better see the handwriting on the wall. Listen, the one who had to see the handwriting on the wall in Scripture, the handwriting said that his life was about to be required of him. So the handwriting on the wall means it's too late. If God is speaking to you through the common, everyday ways of getting into the Word of God and the Spirit of God, illuminating that Word, showing you how to live it out, don't miss it. Look at chapter 16. We just left there last week, but chapter 16 and verse 4. Chapter 16 and verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation wants a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Jonah's sign was the the, the being in the belly of the well for three days, just like Jesus would be in the grave and, and resurrected. In other words, you have the gospel, you have the good news. Don't always be saying, well, I'm not going to move until I get a sign from God. He says, here's the sign, the gospel. Christ died for your sins according to the Scriptures, was buried on the third day, rose from the grave. 
Jesus Christ is alive and well. He's ascended to the Father. He has sent His Holy Spirit to come and indwell you, to guide you into the Word of God. You have a sign from God. You have a Word of God. Learn to listen and see and observe Him at work around you in the everyday things. Learn how God commonly speaks by the Holy Spirit through the Bible. Prayer, circumstances, the church, brothers and sisters in Christ say, here's how I see God working in your life. Learn to observe and listen and recognize God at work all around you. Don't drift. Pray often as the prophet Samuel prayed when he was just a kid. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Let that be part of your everyday life. And then when you get a foretaste of His glory and heaven opens up, that's just icing on the cake. That's that word of confirmation. That vision you needed to prepare you for something special. But don't forsake what you know you already have every day. The precious, priceless Word of God. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. The call on your life. Listen to what God is saying. Respond to what God is saying. And get in on what He has for you. Will you bow your heads with me?